Hey, before we start, I just wanted to say that this episode on access to justice and what is wrong with access to justice was recorded before COVID-19 took over our lives. You will not hear it mentioned on this podcast. We will be coming back to COVID. We just talked about in our last episode with Dr. Casey Park, and he's going to come back and update us on how the situation is unfolding. We're going to talk about policy responses and how it's impacting our politics. But it's also important, I think, to have some dedicated episodes on this podcast to talk about things that aren't COVID, not only to help get your mind off of the disease, which is really important to do as it unfolds, because it just seemed like it's been this monolith of nothing but COVID-19. But there's also things that were wrong in this province before COVID started and are kind of on pause now and will continue to be wrong after it lets up. And it's important to keep those in mind, to remind ourselves of them. And even while we grapple with this difficult thing, to keep an eye to what we need to be focusing on afterwards. All right, stuff with me. On to the pod. Welcome to Ontario Loud, the podcast for politics, public policy, and current affairs, hosted by recovering political staff right here in Ontario. I'm Chris Martin. And I'm Sam Andre. And today we're going to be talking about Ontario's legal system, how it's working in Doug Ford's Ontario, and specifically how it's working for Ontario's most vulnerable and needy people. And to help us with this weighty topic, we are so pleased to welcome Chris Bentley to the pod. Chris is the Managing Director of the Legal Innovation Zone at Ryerson University, and in previous life served as Minister of Labor, Minister of Training Colleges and Universities, Minister of Energy, Minister of Aboriginal Affairs, and Attorney General of Ontario under Dalton McGuinty in the Liberal government. Chris, welcome to the pod. Hey, it's great to be here. Look forward to the conversation. Absolutely. Well, uh, so pleased you can join us. I'm wondering, the legal system, I think, is a little bit opaque for a lot of people, just sort of how it works, the machinations. I'm kind of wondering if you can give us some context for, like, what an attorney general does in the Ontario context and also maybe just a little bit about yourself what you're doing now what life post for you has been well let me tell you a little bit about my journey Uh, when I left law school and that was in 1979 I practiced for almost 23 years as a criminal defense lawyer did lots of legal aid work and lots of work for free and did a number of labor arbitrations also taught part-time at Western's Law School I went into politics, uh, got elected in 2003, was in the cabinet for 10 years, and four fantastic years as the attorney general. Now, that's a really special position, and I say special not because I occupied it, special because it's generally recognized as a different kind of cabinet position. You are the legal advisor to the government. You're the chief law officer, and you are responsible to the extent the government is responsible for our legal system. Uh, So as the AG, you often give advice to government about what they can and can't do. And they're not always wanting to hear that, especially what they can't do. Uh, So you have this interesting conversation about how to get to yes, if they can get to yes. You are there to try and head off problems or to deal with the ones that arise. And as the uh, chief law officer, you're not only advising on legislation, you cannot allow legislation to proceed if you believe it's going to be unconstitutional. Now, that's different from whether it is subsequently found to be unconstitutional. Uh, But you advise on legislation, and you are responsible for all the Crown attorneys and and for the administration of justice. As I say, you're, you're not responsible alone, because the judges have an independent role to play, that is not controlled by the uh, government or the attorney general. And, of course, governments don't advise the police or other investigative authorities. 
And they often do things that are inconvenient at best for governments at times. They create huge problems for governments, but you can't tell them not to do them. And it's funny, I feel like we're kind of in a year where the role of the attorney general was sort of like really explored on a lot of the opinion sheets uh, uh, coming, I guess, last year uh, was that year. Um, So all of that's really, really helpful uh, context. And that that was an interesting time. Mm -hmm. You know, I I, I won't go back over all of that, but it was interesting as an attorney general, and I'm sure my colleagues were interested as well, to see how the public was receiving and perceiving the back and forth that was going on. Uh, And a lot of the challenge there was as a result of the federal legislation, uh, which effectively allowed for political considerations, but didn't tell anybody how they would be considered or how they should be considered. So, you know, yeah, you can consider this, but we're not going to tell you how to do it. Right. Yeah. And, you know, how many people in the public were aware that that was the case versus how they became aware of it. Right. Um, I was, yeah, it was a fascinating uh, chapter. Diving maybe into today's topic, it should be pretty well known to folks uh, that lawyers aren't cheap. Uh, while our justice system exists for all of us, uh, it access to it often privileges those who can afford the best and the brightest legal teams who can cost hundreds of dollars per hour. Many Ontarians realistically can't afford this, uh, but have significant need for access to the justice system. So for these people, Legal Aid Ontario exists. Legal Aid provides law services to financially eligible, low-income Ontarians across a wide range of areas, including family, criminal, immigration, mental health, other types of law. They run services like uh, hotlines, courthouse services, staff lawyers, support for lawyers willing to work for legal aid rates. They run independent clinics throughout the province. Um, And in Doug Ford's first budget, uh, $133 million was cut from legal aid, uh, with another planned $31 million to be cut in future years. This was about 30% of their budget. So just a massive cut to the bottom line of the organization. They faced some backlash over this. Uh, and in December 2019, so fairly recently, the government announced that it would be halting the future cuts, but leaving the initial ones in place. And at the same time, introducing new legislation aimed at tackling the issue of access to justice. So sort of trying to signal that we don't believe it should be funded at the same level, but there are some things here we need to tackle. So among other things, this legislation gives the legal aid office more authority over its operational matters than it had previously, removed barriers to online document verification, enhanced civil forfeiture laws, prioritizing the interests of Ontarians in class action lawsuits, which we'll get into a moment, but doesn't seem quite what it sounds like. Um, Apparently made it easier for cyberbullying victims to sue offenders, simplified procedures for uh, small estates and death registration, and increased the maximum fines for lawyers and paralegals who engage in professional misconduct. So I guess uh, that's sort of a broad overview of the system. But going back to maybe like legal aid and, and what it is, uh, Chris, you have a lifetime in this. Wondering if you can start off maybe by telling us who the users of the system are, what needs are being fulfilled, and what interacting with it looks like. Well, you know, if you look back into history, legal aid really started in the uh, 60s. Lots of discussions, and John Turner was actually one of the ones, uh, one of the main architects of the modern legal aid system. And it grew, uh, and it grew. Ontario at one point, and we probably still are, are one of the best-funded legal aid systems per capita anywhere in the world. Now, that is, at various times, that might be as much an indictment of other countries as a a support of our province. But um, up until the recent cuts, um, Ontario was doing very, very well. Uh, Huge amounts of money put into legal aid over the 
10 years of the previous uh, government, I'd say the last 10 years of the previous government. Um, I brought in the largest funding increase in legal aid's history, and then my colleague Madeline Mayer surpassed that. Uh, so it was, uh, it was positive. Legal aid helps uh, those who have no voice. Uh, they are the poorest. They are the unheard. Uh, we think of uh, criminal clients, those charged with criminal offenses, uh, who receive desperately need help. They would be helped either by private lawyers, uh, sometimes in some circumstances by duty counsel. Uh, there used to be in Ontario a rather developing and increasingly large civil legal aid system. That effectively disappeared, except for family, uh, during efforts to balance the budget during the uh, Chrétien Martin years. Uh, so civil legal aid effectively disappeared. <clears throat> and remember, Ontario's is a far more generous system than any other province or territory. Uh, family uh, took some hits during the 90s, um, and uh, but there is a, a private lawyer and a, a staff to some extent, duty counsel to some extent system. Uh, we increase that. Uh, but, you know, legal aid has always been uh, confined to those within a certain income threshold. <clears throat> and it is important to remember that the needs for justice of Ontarians and Ontario businesses have long far outstripped the uh, ability of any legal aid system to fund it. So you said in your introduction, uh, you know, justice is enormously important. Lawyers are very, very expensive. This has been true for decades, and it's true outside the context of legal aid. And the access to justice crisis that we have is not a legal aid crisis. It is far bigger than that. It's not just ours. It is uh, symptomatic of Western, well-moneyed societies that simply are not addressing the rights of citizens in the way they need to be addressed. I just want to add something about the, the cuts. It's an interesting approach, right? You, you cut $130 million and then you say you're going to cut $30 million after, and when you don't cut the $30 million, a lot of the people who are upset about the 130 are quiet. It's an interesting approach. It might be a life lesson for those who want to cut funding from different things in the future. Uh, you know, I am a lifelong supporter of legal aid. I, I've participated in boycotts, um, strikes. I've lobbied ministers of justice and attorneys general. Nice to be one in a government that was actually putting more money in. The cut to legal aid is starting to have rather significant circumstances. They, they weren't instantaneous, except for refugees and potential refugees and other immigration clients, and that was immediate and that was wrong. And although, you know, you can always manage an organization better, any organization, that's going to have real effects on people who have no money and have no voice, and that, that's not right. When you say that there have been effects and there are going to be more, sort of what does that uh, look like uh, like well I mean the first the first example was uh, people with immigration issues uh, they cut the funding for legal aid matters and said it was going to stop effectively just a few months down the road and and that meant a lot of people who would otherwise rely on uh, legal aid funded uh, counsel were not going to get it 
And although the federal government came in with some money shortly thereafter, there was a there was a period there where people were not receiving the advice they needed, where people were being denied that. On the family side, legal aids had to make some had to make some uh, decisions, and they started decreasing some of the help, uh, particularly courthouse-based help that people would need uh, for. Uh, family issues. They started enforcing the income threshold. I always took the position that if someone comes to see a duty counsel at a courthouse, don't ask them how much money they've got. Just give them the help. It'll be more effective and efficient for the system. But legal aid felt they had to start enforcing the income threshold, the income criteria, before they'd even give summary advice. So you started to see those effects They were modified by the fact that legal aid received some one-time funding from the law foundation and from other sources. But one-time funding is one-time funding. And so now they're going to have to make the structural cuts. I mean, all of these people are needy. And uh, you, you can run things more effectively. You can reallocate the money, but it takes time for that to actually work its way through and, and help more people. So there's going to be a near-term loss of justice uh, access to people. Yeah, I'm really struck by what you said a little bit earlier about how even when things were good, you know, we were putting money into the system that access to justice was still an issue and it was not being solved entirely by legal aid. Um, and I'm curious, um, you know, what what does that what does that look like and Uh, Do you think any of the government's proposed modernizations in December get at at any of it? Well, let's answer the last question. No, not a chance, not close. (laughs) The answers are going to be structural, and they require that the profession, the lawyers and the judges and the regulators, look themselves in the mirror and do the things that should be done. And we can talk in a minute about whether I think that'll actually happen. Uh, But look, here's the problem. The... Uh, Law Society's own report in the fall suggested that uh, 88% of the issues that are justiciable would require legal advice aren't receiving it. If you look at courts, uh, family courts, many in the GTA, 70 plus percent of the people are not represented by a lawyer. Overwhelmingly, the people who are not represented tend to be uh, middle-income women and white. So what happens to the rest? And the answer probably is they're not even going to court. So you get people who are not able uh, to stand for their rights, who are not able to get their rights. And let's remember, when we talk about access to justice, it seems like you're, you, you have the ability to go to a place. But justice is a right. It's not a privilege. It's not to be doled out as some sort of dessert at the end of the meal. It's a right that all of us have as part of being a part of this country under the Constitution. It's a right of people to have. And and what's happened over the years is that right has been delivered through regulated professions. So we have the Law Society and other regulators, the governing body of which is elected by lawyers. And they haven't changed the rules to give people choices. And so the lawyers have a monopoly over the delivery of legal services. They're serving about 20% of the people. That means 80% of the people, 90% of businesses, are not getting the justice they have a right to because they can't afford legal assistance. And the lawyers won't change the choices. They won't give up 
their monopoly, even though they're missing a market and they're not serving the people. And then, you know, I mean, what about courts? What do people say about our justice system? It's too complex, too slow, and unaffordable. There are many things you could do in the courts themselves to make them run more effectively, to make them run more affordably. You have to get through the Rules Committee. The Rules Committees have a majority of judges. You could change the rules relatively simply to deal with up to half of the access issues by informing people in a meaningful way, by triaging cases, getting to the decision point faster, getting things out of the system as quickly as possible. If you did that, you can do it, am I allowed to say this, without any more money? You could deal with these things immediately and effectively. And then you'd be able to identify what you need to invest more money in. Two things uh, I thought were really huge in that. A, 70% of family cases proceed without a lawyer. Is that? 70% of the people, uh, yeah. especially in the GTA, it's less in some areas, more in other areas. 70% are self-reps. So they're going without a lawyer. And the number just keeps going up. Yeah. I think a concept that probably will be new to a lot of people listening to this is um, the idea of legal advice and representation without a lawyer. You work in a place called the Legal Innovation Zone. I'm right. curious, what does that what does that what does that look like? I I, I I must admit, as a person who grew up watching, you know, law and TV, and it's some guy, two people in a courtroom, the client sitting sort of silently there, mm-hmm. making grand speeches. I, I I'm not sure I can like, picture that in my head. Well, I was, I was, I like to think of myself as that notional person who stood in the courtroom and made the grand speeches, whether they were grand or not, <laughs> is for somebody else to decide. But when we started the Legal Innovation Zone, Hirsch Perlis and I, it was, it was the world's first incubator dedicated to legal technology, and it was, uh, it was dedicated to building better legal solutions for consumers, whether the consumer is a person with no money or a multi-billion dollar corporation, don't really care. Uh, everybody wants uh, justice faster, simpler, and more affordably. So you have a lot of different entrepreneurs in there um, who some are using artificial intelligence, some very simple, rudimentary technology, uh, who are giving those who need access to justice what they need in a way that they find more understandable and affordable. simple ideas. Uh, you know, it goes from organizations, law firms that need to sort through documents quickly. So you have the diligence of the world that use artificial intelligence to sort documents. You, peop- you need people. We had legal swipe in here a long t- uh, some years ago uh, who wanted instant access to criminal defense information on an iPhone. And so you had a wide range of issues. But one of the challenges they have is that you cannot now anywhere in North America, changing in one place in Utah, have not been able to set up a legal services corporation that's owned by anyone except a lawyer. If I wanted to set up a law firm, Mm -hmm. and I thought that the expertise of a, a technology engineer would be very helpful, and the expertise of a business expert would be very helpful, and they said to me, well, you know, we're more than happy to be part of this, but we want an ownership interest. We can't do that. Mm-hmm. It can only be owned by lawyers. It's just one of the many rules that exist. And uh, provinces and in the states, states have attacked any entity that looks like it's practicing law where it's not owned entirely 
by lawyers. And, and there could be a role for more maybe run-of-the-mill cases, more like thing for, you know, technology for... Huge role. Yeah. The absolutely huge role. The, the, but the overarching question, I think, for the members mm. of the public is, if 80% of you are not receiving access to the justice you need because the choices are too slow, too expensive, too complex, why shouldn't you have the choice where you don't get any measure of justice why shouldn't you have the choice on your own to find some measure of justice? It's your right. It's mm-hmm. not. It shouldn't be their right to say no. This right was given in 1797. 1797. Some things are a little different than they were in 1797. Why isn't this? So I guess I'm struck by the inefficiency of the justice system, you know, certainly predates Doug Ford, the premier. And you would think conservatives would more than anybody want to uh, tackle inefficient systems. And so are you getting a hearing from folks in this government? Are they making progress on any of these issues? I'll just, I'll just build, uh, uh, I'll just build uh, into that. The Auditor General in her December report, few courthouses are actually experiencing overcapacity. In many cases, there's underutilization, you know, things like they're only in operation for 2.8 hours on an average business day. Um, that's the kind of thing that I I just remember. It's the kind of report that I like. That would be a big issues day if we were if 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 you know I were in the Meg M O. So you know it's interesting, and I and I thought it was actually unfortunate that that those in charge of court utilization, uh, and I would say the judges, didn't take the opportunity to respond. I think more directly to that uh, because I don't. The issue is not for a moment uh, that, you know, judges aren't working hard because they are. The, the issue uh, isn't that a number of people in the, in the court system are just refusing to let cases in the door where they could be dealt with. The issue is this, is what we have historically seen to be an ineffective way of getting cases to their conclusion. And so when you see things like the Auditor General and then people see that there's a billion-plus-dollar courthouse being built right in the heart of downtown Toronto that on its own will not improve access to justice to one Ontarian, you might ask yourself, well, why are we doing that? And I think many Ontarians would have a question. So the Auditor's report about court utilization, I think, raises some very important issues. Not that the judges aren't working hard, because they are. Now my wife's a judge. <laughs> Let's be clear here. Let's be clear. Uh, they, they are. I, I've seen it from the outside, and now I've seen it from, you know, the other side. They're working hard. And not that things don't happen that cause cases to collapse. But if you stand back and look at the system, there's a better way to approach much of it. And I want to give you an example. I want to give you an example from the time I was AG, because the issue, one of the issues I was given by Premier McGinty when I became the AG is make this criminal justice system move faster. There was the Askoff decision, and I won't go too far into the rabbit hole, but there was the Askoff decision in 1990, which effectively caused more than 100,000 charges in Ontario to be thrown out. Why? Because of delay. And from 1990 through to the time that I became the AG in 2007, Ontario invested hundreds of millions of dollars. They hired more judges, they got more crowns, they built more courthouses, they invested a lot of money in process. We created regional crowns offices, 
regional court administration offices. They were regional judges' offices. They were local offices, all to manage the numbers. And guess what? The time to trial increased, didn't decrease for the average case. Mm -hmm. The number of appearances increased, didn't decrease. When I say appearances, there are millions every year. So even though any appearance in court takes a couple of minutes, case goes in, the case goes out. Six or seven different organizations touch it. It's a huge investment of time and money, and it wasn't working. Yeah. We bury the system in process. So what did we do? We didn't have extra money. We weren't health. We weren't getting extra money to invest in anything. And besides, that wasn't working. So what did we say? And I, and, and I said, most of these cases are never going to trial. And if you give the Crown and the defense lawyer, the individuals, the information they need right up the front, they will quickly decide, relatively quickly decide, whether that case is going to go further, whether it should be withdrawn, whether it should be a guilty plea, whether it should be a plea bargain. Don't, make, don't ask people to make decisions differently than they would otherwise. Give them the tools to make the decision they would otherwise make. So inform them. Give them an opportunity to resolve quickly up front. We set a target of a 30% reduction in the number of appearances and the time to trial over four years. In government, you tend not to set targets because you get measured against targets. But if you don't set a target, then nobody changes. And you know what? For the first time in 18 years, the number of appearances went down, the time to trial went down. Didn't invest in more judges, didn't invest in more crowns, didn't invest in more stuff. It was just looking at the system instead of looking at the end point, the trial point, look at it at the beginning. And then guess what happened? I left. Some of the stakeholders didn't really like this system because it didn't mean more of more. And that's our answer for everything. It's more. Mm -hmm. More time, presumably. More, you know, more judges, more lawyers, more stuff. It seems to be the answer for everything in justice, but it doesn't work. So they dismantled justice on target, and guess what? Less than four years later, we have Jordan. The Jordan decision, which everybody's heard of, mm -hmm. which it's the new ask-off. It's exactly the same issue where a case managed to get to be four years old. Now, how is it possible with local administration, regional administration, provincial administration, that any case gets to wander through the system and be four years old. How is that possible after Askoff? And I think Ontarians should be asking that question. So justice, like so many areas of life, often devolves into this, well, they're not spending more money, therefore they're not doing a better job. But in justice, we can step back and say, how are we spending our money? What's the priority? We can do better with what we're spending. And when we do better, then you can walk in and say, okay, we've dealt with half the issue. Now let's spend the rest of the money more effectively to address the issues that are really left. And that's the approach that I've been taking, that I would take, and that I think in answer to your question, uh, Sam, about the government, I think that's the opportunity of this government which s says it's prepared to look at things differently, to actually look at things differently. The world's changing. If you want to be a leader, 
injustice, and it affects not just people. It affects women, children, men. It affects build businesses, job opportunities. You want to be a leader? You can't build a 21st century economy on a 19th century approach to justice. So let's modernize, and let's uh, take a different approach, get a different result. You know what Einstein said? You see the same stuff in the same way, you get the same results. So let's change the approach. So maybe with our uh, last question, uh, maybe a more specific topic, So, uh, but maybe on people's minds given the media coverage about it. So one of the specific changes that the government made was around class action lawsuits. Um, and uh, I think many have pointed out that it has made it harder to get class action lawsuits uh, certified. Could you maybe unpack that change for our listeners and what impact you think it's going to have? Well, I, I will at a high level. I'm not, I was never a class action lawyer. Look, class actions serve a very important role. They allow people who have a complaint to be brought together with other people with a similar complaint and to actually bring an action in court against what is usually a much more powerful uh, defendant. The individuals with the complaint would never be able to do it on their own. You remember the cases with uh, women with breast implants. Uh, it, on their own, they never would have been able to do this. Uh, in the States, uh, people who'd, who uh, had uh, lung cancer or other medical issues from smoking tobacco, individually, they never would have. Yeah, opioid. Uh, opioid is the yeah, more recent I, yeah. one. Opioid is the more recent one. They never would have been able to. But, I mean, class actions uh, have... The approach has enabled those individuals to find some measure of justice. And, of course, there's a standard. I mean, is the class, and I'm speaking very generally, so all the specialists out there, sorry. Uh, the, you know, is it a, are there groups of people with really a similar interest? Uh, and, and is it appropriate to allow them to proceed as a class? And there have been countless cases defining what this is. Now look, class actions are inconvenient. They're inconvenient for the rich and the powerful because they get asked questions they'd rather not answer. They're inconvenient for corporate interests uh, that have maybe done something they shouldn't have done or they've done something that people want to ask them questions about because they get asked these questions. And they're inconvenient sometimes for governments because people in different situations get to come together and take on the government. And that's always inconvenient for a government. doesn't mean it's wrong. Governments need to be held to account. So what some of these changes that the government is bringing in, and there's lots of discussion going on, lots of uh, argument being made uh, by those who are aware of the effect, what the lawyers tell us about these proposed changes is it will decrease the opportunity of individuals to get together by raising the threshold they have to meet in order to become a class. So if the lawyers are right, then we're going to see fewer class actions, less holding to account of the powerful, corporate, and government. And I don't think that's right. Yeah, and I thought their phrasing in their press release was really interesting. It was prioritizing the interests of Ontarians in class action lawsuits. Like I can kind of imagine myself in the, like how do we how do you spin 
that change and it's like oh well you know we'll better prioritize it but uh buried in that i word is you know potentially less volume and it it's not clear yeah what problem this is the solution for right. we can speculate <laughs> but it's just not clear And that's all the time we have for today. Thank you so much for listening. I want to thank Chris Bentley so much for coming on to Ontario Loud. Uh, that was an amazing discussion. Um, I learned a lot, namely that 70% of people who go to family court in this province don't have access to a lawyer because our legal system is that inaccessible. That is a pressing issue that we need to fix as soon as we possibly can. Uh, and Chris has some great ideas to do it. I encourage you to check out his work at the Ryerson Legal Innovation Zone. Ontario Loud is Sam Andrew, Alexi White, Green Metallic Kapoor, and myself, Chris Martin. Alvin Tejo is joining us on our next episode where we will be talking with Dr. David Coletto and our own Harmon Mundy about the impact that Stephen Del Duca has had on Ontario politics and also the impact that COVID-19 has had on Ontario politics and namely the personal popularity of Doug Ford, who is widely regarded to have comported himself quite well during this crisis. So we'll be getting into all of that. Really excited for that episode. We were supported by amazing volunteers, namely Harmon Mundy and Aisha Anwar. Aisha produced some amazing graphics for this episode. So check those out. We'll be putting those out on Twitter this week. Yeah, stay safe out there. If you haven't yet, support us on Patreon. We are at patreon.com slash OntarioLoud or OntarioLoud.ca. Uh, and just hit that Patreon link. You can support us for tiers uh, anywhere from 3 to 5 to $15 a month, and it really goes a long way to helping make this pod sound better, reach more people, do it if you haven't done it yet. Don't know why you're not doing it, but you should really do it. All right, have a great week, everyone. Talk to you later.